Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. Lots of big news that I think a lot of people are waking up to this morning. Of course, we have a replacement for NAFTA. It is the U.S. Mexico-Canada Agreement. We're going to talk about this today with Dan Churiak. He's a fellow in residence at C.D. Howe Institute. He's going to give us his initial thoughts on what this means. Lots of very interesting stuff to consider here. I also want to bring everyone's attention to the fact that Business in Vancouver is presenting the 2018 Top 100 Fastest Growing Companies reception on October 4th. That is this coming Thursday. And this networking reception is going to highlight the achievements of companies across British Columbia that have shown remarkable growth over the last five years. I'll be there along with some of my BIV colleagues that you may have heard on the show before. You can go find more information at BIV.com slash events. And after we speak to Dan Triak, we're also going to speak to RBC senior economist Robert Hogue all about the escalating housing crisis facing Metro Vancouver. The bank just put out a new study and it shows us that Vancouver has actually fallen to the worst levels ever on record. But first, here's Dan Trick from the C.D. Howe Institute. So maybe some night owls caught the news last night with regards to the new NAFTA replacement. It is now the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue the same way that NAFTA does. But with us to give his uh, first takes on this new deal here, with this trilateral deal between the three countries here in North America, it's Dan Churiak. He is a fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute. Dan, thanks for taking the time to talk to us on the show. My pleasure. So I, I think a lot of people are, are drawing upon the fact that Canada looks like there's going to be a little bit more economic stability going forward here. We have more assurances about the length of time that this uh, deal will encompass. Tell us about maybe your first reaction to whether or not this is going to be a bit of a relief for, I guess, people looking at the Canadian economy and looking for stability within it. In some ways, it definitely is, because um, there's at least the promise, um, I'm not sure about the reality, but there's a promise that the sort of Democles of, 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 of losing the uh, NAFTA uh, trade agreement altogether and or the imposition of 25% auto tariffs, that seems to have been lifted for at least um, some period of time. It's not clear to me, actually, that there's a, a full-out promise. We don't have, for example, I think a clear-cut uh, outcome on the removal of the national security tariffs on steel and aluminum. Uh, so, but there, but there is a sense of relief, and the markets responded positively to that. So, when you take a look at the at the uh, longer term picture, however, I think there are some uh, uh, unsettling optics here. Um, you know, even look at the name USMCA. I mean, it's US first. That's that's Trump. Um, and it's there's no longer North America in there. There's not the sense that we will be building things together as as uh, uh, was the storyline with NAFTA. Mr. Trump did go out of his way to say that this would be a block, uh, but I can, we, we can talk about that. But we don't have the sense of, of togetherness. It's also not a free trade deal. Most of the words that uh, Mr. Lighthizer used in his description were protection. It was protection this, protection that. And in economic terms, uh, if we have the courage of our convictions that liberalization leads to welfare and efficiency, then protection does the opposite. So I would be hard-pressed to quantify this trade agreement and come out with, with, with figures in the black for Canada. 
Well, and the other thing that I, I think a lot of people have been worried about, though, you mentioned the auto tariffs as well, but also just access to, say, the dairy markets. And, and we see that's, uh, I, I believe the number is 3.5% versus the 3.25% uh, that the uh, TPP, or I guess the new TPP partners will have access to. Does all this consternation over dairy, does it matter gravely to the relationship between Canada and the United States? Well, it's it's certainly um, a market access game for the United States. And for, from a Canadian perspective, uh, if we were dealing in a competitive marketplace and this would drive down prices for consumers, then we would quantify that as positive. But in a supply-managed world, it's not clear to me how this will impact on final prices. I mean, will the milk marketing board set a lower price uh, because uh, some of the milk is coming from the U.S.? Or will, in fact, U.S. producers get a rent, uh, basically a lump sum payment from Canada, as the capturing market share that would be going to Canadians? Uh, so I'm not sure about that element of it. But um, certainly in terms of the, the impact on the dairy industry, when you add on top of the 3.25 to Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, economies, you add the 3.59% of the U.S. and then the, the, the amount that we uh, open up to uh, the EU, there is now a fairly sizable hit uh, to the system. And it's, a, it's an open question, I think, at this time, whether Canada wants to continue down the, the path it's been on dairy, where we cannot export and we cannot go after the U.S. in market share. Uh, we only have to allow them to import. Uh, by, so should we actually restructure? Is this the time to, to, uh, to say we need to move to a competitive uh, economy on dairy? I think a, a lot of people will be thinking along those lines. But of course, the dairy industry itself is facing a pretty hard adjustment. The other thing that I think was the big sticking point for Canadian negotiators was the dispute resolution mechanism, Chapter 19 under NAFTA, and I believe it's going to be Chapter 10 under the USMCA. Why do you think this was such an important issue for the Canadian negotiators, and does it matter that we are retaining it to such a high degree here? Uh, there's there's two points on this. First of all, uh, this is an area where uh, the, the new USMCA is differs from the NAFTA. NAFTA was a true trilateral, but in this particular case, that the new Chapter 10, which you mentioned, um, applies only for Canada and the U.S. By, uh, it, by contrast, the new uh, ISDS Investor State Dispute Settlement Mechanism, that applies only between the U.S. and Mexico. So what we, we've gone from, from uh, a NAFTA to actually, uh, well, from the three amigos sense of, of the NAFTA that, that we had back in, the, uh, in the 1994 to two bilaterals under one umbrella. It's a, it's a bit of a complex beast. But in terms of the rationale for Chapter 19, uh, as anti-dumping and countervailing duty uh, initi uh, initiations were, were declining over the years, it was uh, starting to get used less and less. And a, a case could have been made before Mr. Trump that we could actually let this go and, uh, and rely on U.S. courts for appeals. But now Mr. Trump has dusted off all of his protectionist uh, tools, and he's actually made Chapter 19, or now the Chapter 10, relevant again. Uh, so the, in a sense, it's a perverse kind of a thing. He, by, by creating a, a fear of uh, 
access to the United States because he loves tariffs so much. Um, he is he made uh, chapter uh, 19, chapter 10 now, uh, all the more important for Canada. You will recall that in the um, original negotiations in 1988 towards the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, this was the walkaway issue for Canada, and the reason it was was because in the 1980s saw the rise of U.S. protectionism, and we've seen the rise of U.S. protectionism again. So we are back to the 1980s in terms of the importance of Chapter 19. Well, Dan, I feel as if we're going to be picking apart all the details from this for the next couple of weeks. And I really do appreciate you making yourself available to talk to us today, just giving us uh, first thoughts on what this means for us. Thank you very much. That's Dan Triak. He is a fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute. Stay with us. We are going to speak next to Robert Hogue. He is Senior Economist at RBC. Vancouver housing affordability has plummeted to what RBC is calling never-seen-before levels. Now, this is from a new report out from RBC Economic Research today. It's all about housing affordability, and the numbers aren't pretty. Joining us today to discuss it all is Robert Hogue. He is Senior Economist at RBC Economic Research. Robert, great to have you back on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So if you look at the measure at which it would take to cover the cost of home ownership, where does Vancouver stack up right now versus where it was previously? Well, now we're talking uh, just a little over 88% of an income uh, of a typical household income. So those in the middle of the income distribution that would need to be required to cover the cost of mortgages, uh, mortgage payments, the uh, uh, property taxes, as well as utilities. So uh, Needless to say, this is this is uh, extremely high, uh, which means that also that uh, for the vast majority of uh, households out there, owning a property in the area is extremely expensive. And now I, I think that a lot of my you know, peers, they're looking at the condo market for some sort of way into the market. But I, I find that the report actually has some you know concerning numbers about even affordability within that particular market and how it's eroding as well. True. And the the, the affordability measures for, for that, uh, for, for condos, and we're talking here uh, a little over 52%. So uh, that even though on a relative basis, it's, it's more affordable to own a condo in uh, the Vancouver area than it is uh, to own a single detached home. It is still a stretch for a lot of people to uh, become an owner of a condo. Yeah, one of the things that you guys pointed out in this report here is that with regards to single-family detached home ownership, uh, you say it's, quote, for the rich only. That's a, a tough, like a bitter pill for a lot of people to swallow at this point. What kind of costs are involved with regards to this single-family detached home ownership in the region now? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a tough pill to swallow, but at the same time, I'm sure it's no surprise to anyone who have been in, in the market in Vancouver for a single detached home. I mean, our measure for that category is now uh, almost uh, 120%, which is obviously not possible. I mean, in other words, the, the an ordinary family cannot own a single detached home uh, uh, at current prices and current uh, uh, levels of interest rates. 
so uh, it is, uh, you know, you can call it, uh, you know, only for for those at the higher end of the income distribution. Or so you know, we call them the rich ones, <laughs> those who can afford uh, that 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 kind of, of uh, that kind of housing. So is it concerning for an economist then if we do see Metro Vancouver residents still maybe stretching themselves in order to get into the market? Do you think that there is a risk that we're becoming a little bit more overextended? Uh, of course, there is a risk. Uh, and that, that risk, I think, uh, in our view, is even more worrying in the sense that we do expect that interest rate will continue to rise. Now, have to keep in mind that the deterioration in affordability in Vancouver and elsewhere uh, in Canada over the past year hasn't been as much as uh, because, uh, related to higher prices. It's been because interest rates have risen in the past year. Now, this is not a big surprise. I mean, we've been expecting the Bank of Canada to raise interest rates for, for a long time now. Uh, but now it is taking place, and markets that are the most expensive in Canada are obviously the most sensitive to a rise in interest rates. So we've seen uh, int- uh, mortgage rates rise you know, quite materially over the past year. In our view, that uh, you know, in the context of the Bank of Canada not being done uh, with its uh, interest rate uh, hike cycle, uh, it probably means that uh, there will be you know, that upward pressure on uh, mortgage rate is is not going to dissipate. Uh, uh, in in the near term, so you know, the current level of of affordability is poor, and unfortunately, the prospects are that it's going to probably going to get poorer going forward. And I'm wondering, because there's so many different elements at play here, because, of course, if we look at where interest rates are going, it's very much dictated by what the Bank of Canada, the central bank, decides to do. But we also have in British Columbia, uh, we've had two different governments introduce various measures in order to level off the housing affordability issue, though. Do we need to have some sort of synchronicity going on between all the different institutions across the country in order to grapple with this to a certain degree? Well, ideally, yes. But keep in mind that the Bank of Canada has the sole mandate, which is to keep inflation stable uh, across across the country. So, it, and it does say explicitly it's not trying to manage any kind of sector, particularly uh, specifically uh, across Canada, including the housing market. Now that being said, the Bank of Canada is mindful of if it's an uh, impact on on uh, no, the big sectors like housing market. But at the end of the day, it, it's its policy is being driven by uh, what's happening in in uh, on the inflation front. Now, more locally or at the provincial level. Uh, or what we've seen over the last uh, since um, the middle of 2016 is a number of measures that managed to address. Well, they were focusing on mostly on the demand side, you know, imposing taxes on foreign buyers, for example. Um, ended up cooling the market for a period of time, uh, and uh, but ultimately, uh, probably it, it did. Ultimately, it did manage to stabilize the market for a period of time, uh, but it did not uh, really roll back the clock that much with respect to affordability. Now, no prices aren't rising as fast as they were, say, a couple of years ago, but you're still at stable prices. The, the price levels are remain sky high, uh, uh, in, uh, especially for the single detached homes. So, if you want synchronicity, uh, that that would be great. Uh, but 
the issue really about affordability probably still needs to be uh, remains to be addressed and a big part of the solution takes a while and it, it comes from the supply side. Yeah, and it's very a difficult thing to kind of wrap our heads around because there's so many different factors going on here. And I'm just wondering if do you think the tools that maybe the provincial governments or maybe some of the local governments across Canada have at their disposal, they're going to be effect, more effective at uh, dealing with this issue than maybe, say, the central bank, which, as you say, ha- has a mandate towards, you know, taming inflation rates? Yeah, and this is the something that the Bank of Canada itself has, has said uh, all along, that look, to address uh, the issues either for housing, but more specifically about household debt. Uh, uh, it, it, those issues are better addressed using what the bank calls macro prudential measures. So measures that address those uh, issues specifically, not this, this kind of the broad range uh, monetary policy, so interest rate policy. Uh, and uh, so, uh, no, and this isn't, to be fair to provincial government in BC and in Ontario, they've uh, they've come forward with a set of uh, 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 no plans uh, in, in Ontario with uh, the Fair Housing Plan and in BC, and now the most most recently the 30 point uh, uh, plan to address uh, the housing issue, um, and that's uh, most likely uh, the uh, I guess the, 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 those. Uh, I guess responses that have the most uh, potential, uh, uh, I guess, likelihood of success over over time. Uh, and in my book, I think the supply side needs to be the focus uh, because this is the, price, the high prices are the result of uh, of uh, demand and supply not being not being able to uh, uh, come in, in in equilibrium quickly enough. And you mentioned uh, earlier that that we are expecting, say, a rate hike coming from the uh, central bank. So do you anticipate, you know, as we try to catch up with the supply side of things, that there will be tough times ahead for Canadians as the central bank also hikes rate, uh, hikes its benchmark rate? Well, I'm not quite sure I would characterize it as tough times ahead for everybody. Uh, I think it's tougher times that we've seen with respect to interest payments, for example. Uh, no, that's the whole point of raising interest rates. It becomes a little bit more onerous to carry your debt. And for some Canadians, their debt load is, is quite elevated. Uh, and uh, so that's an element that uh, you know, we as a bank, <laughs> I work for a bank, you know, we monitor very closely. But for the central bank in particular, he's going to continue to monitor very closely. Well, uh, Robert, always a pleasure speaking to you. I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Well, pleasure is mine. Thank you. That's Robert Hogue. He is Senior Economist at RBC. 